everyone and welcome to another episode. Um, this is Stephanie from From the Lighthouse and I'm here with my friend and colleague Dr Kirsten Mills and today we are continuing our special series on teen adaptations or teen adaptations of classic literature and this week we're looking at a comparatively little known film, certainly something that neither Kirsten or I I think had, had heard of, which is the 2001 film Get Over It. Um, starring Kirsten Dunst, she's probably the most famous of the of the show stars, uh, which is an adaptation, sort of, of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, Kirsten, what did you think of Get Over It? <laughs> um, I, having not not heard of this film before, I'm surprised. Um, you know, given that it comes. You know, the year after Bring It On with Kirsten Dunst, the year before Spider Man, which she was also in. You know, this, yeah, that's this right. Spider Man, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is the era where she really shines, and um, this film. But I think it was a bit of a sleeper around the world. I don't know that it did that well. Um, I so so I, I watched it recently. I watched it for this this podcast episode, and I strangely enjoyed it. I thought <laughs> it was quirky and weird, but I I, I laughed. Um, I thought there was an innocent humor in it, um, and I just thought it was kind of it's a bit sort of quirky, charming, sweet. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't think there's much that's very revolutionary about it and I don't think it's the best of the films that we've seen by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. But it was cute. I found it interesting to compare it to um, some of the other adaptations that we've discussed. So Ten Things, obviously, um, being a big one and Clueless. And I was actually surprised that this was a 2001 film because it Mm. feels so much earlier. It feels closer to 95's Clueless, even just in the colourful opening credits. Um, But I guess you know even 10 things in 99 had the same sort of style mm, so it's very sure. it's very of its era mm. in its playful um self-aware cinematic and graphic sort of techniques that it's using and i found those really quite enjoyable here um because of the way that they're used not just to be cool but also mm. to like play with the format and that's what the whole film is doing um it's it's got that dreamlike you know, made up, imagined space. You know, we're not quite sure if things are real or not. Um, you know, like vitamin C um, singing a breakup song <laughs> as he walks out of the breakup with his girlfriend. I have vitamin to say, C, a great nineties, nineties relic. Yeah, and we were just discussing that graduation song, um, <laughs> which was played for at everyone's graduations for years mm-hmm. um, in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, I have to say that opening sort of number where you know yeah he's just been broken up with and he walks out of the garage and the band starts following him down the street and in comes the big band to join <laughs> them and people and I just you know I, I thought um that was just so enjoyable I think that was the the point at which I decided I liked the film and so I was kind of predisposed to enjoy the rest of it from then on because I was like this is silly but it knows it yeah uh, and it kind of just embraces it without going too far I thought mm. it was there are some really silly moments throughout the film, like that the, the pet dog yeah. that just humps everything, <laughs> but who gets his own romantic ending. Yes. That, that was <laughs> so um, for anyone that hasn't seen the film, it's essentially a, a really quite a simple premise. Um, boy gets dumped by girl, pines over her, decides way to win her back is to um, become one of the leads in the school's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, which is, what do they call it, a Midsummer Night's Rockin' Eve. <laughs> <laughs> 
so it's this really outlandish, rewritten sort of adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, he enlists his best friend's sister to help him nail the part. And uh, you know, as you can imagine, they fall in love and and they get their happy ending. But there are all of these um, side characters that actually have rather large roles. I mm. thought it was really an ensemble sort of yeah. a show. I really liked that, including the aforementioned pet dog, yes. <laughs> who is a very sexually frustrated animal. Scene stealer. Yeah. And he just, <laughs> so every time we see him, he's, um, you know, humping someone's leg or running down the street to find something to attack. <laughs> and uh, in the end, he's in the audience watching this production of A Midsummer Night's Rockin' Eve um, and he's got his sweet poodle girlfriend there yes. and they're all happy and in love and it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous but also well, that was one of the most genuinely sweet moments yeah. of the film for me. <laughs> I did love that and I absolutely loved Martin Short as like the most <laughs> flamboyant, ridiculous theatre director of all time. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> I think he's, he's probably the best the best one, mm. uh, the best character, I think, was him. He's definitely a scene stealer. Oh yeah, um, Doctor Desmond Forrest Oates. I <laughs> yeah. never quite address why he's he's got those titles or those names. It's just it's just extra in yeah. every way. I loved it, and the little kind of imagined scenes yeah. um, of like him conducting an orchestra of homeless people when he decides that he's going to be homeless, and that's the only art, you know, theater, theatrical experience he's going to have. Um, that was people to listen to his demo tape. Yeah, that he's made for, <laughs> who did he, he make a song for? He wrote a song for Bette Midler or something. It was like Whitney Houston or someone, yeah. someone huge someone and huge. unapproachable, you know, for someone. And of course he says, you know, well, I wrote this song for them, but actually he just wrote a song and then ran down the street after them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was excellent. Um, and he has some of the the best lines as well. Um just in terms of the way he speaks to the students, it's wildly inappropriate <laughs> and abusive, but also um, quite yeah. funny because he's just got his eyes on the prize and he just wants to be a star. <laughs> I have to say that that production of Midsummer Night's Dream was amazing and I wanted to see the whole thing. <laughs> Me too. It's this musical version. <laughs> it was actually really good. We, we do see um, a fair bit of it, and I, I was quite happy about that. Yeah. Uh, and I think as far as, like, the film in general goes, in terms of its approach to adaptation, I really like that they did that um, because that's what Shakespeare does anyway. Midsummer Night's Dream includes the play within a play, mm. um, so that's exactly what they're doing. They've got their little um, musical production within the film, <laughs> um, and we get to see most of it. And, yeah, it is oddly satisfying. <laughs> it was just really just fresh. Just really kind funny. of like fun, poppy kind of version. Yeah. I'm like, I'm into this. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. I also love the way that the um, the characters describe Shakespeare to each other. Yeah. So, but you know, they do the, the classic, okay, you know, it's really hard to understand at first, but once you do, it's actually kind of cool. Which, yeah. you know, I was like, yep, fist pump, you yep. know, as an exactly. English person, we're like, yes, Students, that's exactly that's what, we're... Exactly what we, we're telling you all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and the summaries they give, um, Kelly, uh, who's played by Kirsten Dunst, says, you know, at one point, she's like, this pretty much leaves Lysander screwed. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I really like those yes, succinct summaries. Yes. Uh, and again, that that reminded me a lot of um, Ten Things and its mm. approach to the dialogue of the film while mm. the characters are mm. paralleling their Shakespearean equivalents. So I thought that was really fun. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's very lighthearted. I wouldn't say this is really an adaptation. I mean, it sort of is in that it plays with that idea of a kind of, you know, love triangle and, you know, the couple's kind of getting scrambled up and not being the right person and yeah. all that. So it kind of tries to make a... A comparison between the plot 
which is very simple, as you said, very, very simple. It's just basically guy gets dumped, is falling in love with a <laughs> different girl, gets an opportunity to go back, decides he wants to be with a different girl. You know, it's not that hard, it's not that um, complex. Um, they try, you can see them trying to make some um, parallels between the plot and the play, but that's not the point of it um, at all, really. It's the, the point of it is to, is to create this kind of, um, I don't know, fantasy absurdist space. I think there's a like a strain of absurdism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, for me though, I think if we ignore plot, that's where it comes into its strength as an adaptation. It's yeah. Style. Yeah. So it doesn't match the plot exactly. I mean, it leaves entire um, plot lines out. Entire yeah. characters are completely out. Mm. Um, but as far as like you said, creating that kind of a space in which um, up is down, down is up, like mm. you know, this kind of carnivalesque, mm. um, bacchanalian celebratory space where just everything isn't what it seems uh, and in fact that's kind of the driving sort of theme is that um you know things aren't what they seem and you, sh- you know maybe maybe what you once wanted isn't what you want anymore you just have to open your eyes and see what's in front of you and obviously you know in midsummer night's dream um with the you know magic flower that gets dusted yeah. on their eyelids and they wake up from dreams and they see people immediately fall in love and they fall asleep again and they don't know what's reality and what's mm. not so there's so much of this layering and play i think with time with space with reality and imagination dream there's magic. lots of dream sequences where i they, loved it <laughs> where they're in there and they're in the kind of like the dream sequences look like you can imagine a more conventional adaptation of yeah. of Midsummer Night's Dream looks, but they're they're also quite tongue in cheek and funny. Exactly, they're not they're yeah. not super serious. They're like all of a sudden they're in a forest in togas and with little magic sprinkles <laughs> like the fairy yeah. sprinkling fairy dust all over them. I thought it was really cute. I really loved those moments where um you know it's mostly in Burke's imagination that this happened. Our main character and he's mm. just this love sick boy. He just cannot get this ex girlfriend out of his head. Um, and and I she's kind of not liked any that. good anyway. Get yeah, <laughs> sorry, go Kirsten on. Dunst is right in front of you. I know. <laughs> anyway, go on. Um, I just, you know, so this happens in his head and we get some really odd camera angles that force us to recognise the element of play that is going mm-hmm. on here. We're not being asked to take this seriously. We're suspending reality. And uh, I just find that... Again, that was really innocent and really sweet. Mm. That really classic Shakespearean for- magic midnight moonlit yeah. forest kind of scenario was was it just plays on the romance and the innocence uh, and the magic of it. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And even the way that things, like we knew, I mean, obviously in a romantic comedy, you know sort of how things are going to go, right, because there is a formula. But there's a, a kind of lightness to the romance. There's a lightness to, um, you know, everything's going to work out. You know, everything's not too serious. You know, um, there's there's a real kind of um, innocence, I think, to it. Mm. Even, even the scenes that are, I mean, some of these scenes are kind of dated a little bit, like the scene where he goes to the... Um, strip club very dated yeah <laughs> yeah there were a few um a few jokes at the expense of topless women yeah but even those sort of things aren't played super seriously they're played as, as jokes and so yeah. you can kind of forgive it like you know that those the scenes are a bit cringy to watch today when he mm. goes to the, the strip club when he um the the girl when he goes on a date with the girl dora i think her name yeah. is who can't do anything right <laughs> that is all very cringe but it it's plays it lightly it doesn't yeah. it doesn't 
intend for us really I think to, to think very seriously about it and yeah. that sort of helps you get or overlook those things it absolutely and, does and I did love the um, extremely sexually liberated parents I know and you know talk about so I think you know we, we talked um, a few episodes ago about Easy A drawing on teen stereotypes yeah. before it of teen films and possibly this might have been a source of inspiration yeah. for her sexually liberated parents yeah these, um, are, these, these are go so far <laughs> um, yeah to the point where Burke is constantly admonishing them for not being disappointed in him for having a party or for trusting him and for just handing him you know a wad of condoms and being like we'll spring for a DJ just go and have fun and finding him in a harness in a strip club and yeah. going we're so proud of you we're so proud of you <laughs> he's just been arrested for yeah it's just um yeah so that that was silly but also like a, a source of innocent humor in yeah. a way that they do support him and you know um, I think that, like, yeah, what you're saying is, is true. Um, a lot of these things that are dated or completely ridiculous, because they're not taken seriously by the film, mm. and even the characters almost know that it's ridiculous, mm. um, especially Burke as our grounding yeah. influence. Yeah, his, I agree. His, his reaction to everything around him helps. Um, but I think it sets us up for the the really sweet innocence of the actual moments, like when um, Burke's best friend Felix, who is Kelly's sister, Who's, uh, um, oh, sorry. Yes, yep. Kelly is his sister. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so he is really weirdly overprotective of his sister for a while, doesn't want her yeah. to be with any other boys, which I always find really a little bit creepy these days. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Like, it just reminded me of Dawson's Creek a little bit. That yeah. kind of like you're not allowed to go out with him and this is a major issue. I was like, nobody, would anyone think this is a major issue now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think especially it's got this really um, – old-fashioned sort of male, you know, like a brother's being overprotective yeah. of his little sister. Um, but I think this film does just rescue itself from the clutches of that mm. stereotype um, quite nicely because Felix ends up being really sweet and he's actually genuinely really nice and supportive of his sister in an unironic yeah. way, which I thought was really lovely. And yeah. then the parents as well in the end when they're just in the audience proudly watching their son in the midst of that street performance, and that's really sweet as well. Yeah, and even when they see Kelly, they're like, oh, she looks beautiful. She looks beautiful, and it's not meant to be funny. It's not, we're, yeah. we're, we're at the, as the audience, we're thinking, yes, she does. She does. <laughs> yeah, no, there is a sweetness to it. And you think that, like, when I first saw that scene in which Felix says, you know, well, I'm going to punch you out for making out with my sister. I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. Here we go and it just yeah. gave me these, these Dawson's Creek, you know, you belong to me kind of flashbacks, um, <laughs> although that was a very different kind of situation. Um, but then when he says to her, well, if he doesn't realise what a great person you are, then that's his problem. I'm exactly, like, yeah. Aw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, there was a real yeah. kind of innocence to it. And, you know, they play, the, the relationship plays out innocently. Um, you know they're going to get together, but there's the way it plays out is quite sweet. They, you know, they just work together and they, you know, come to an understanding. And Kirsten yeah. Dunst is great, and she's, she's always great. great. And her singing debut in that yeah. song, that number that she does in the, uh, which is on the soundtrack, I think, for the movie. Yeah, um, she, she's gorgeous. She does yes. such a good job. And and what I love about that is that. So we're like, yay, Kirsten Dunst, mm-hmm. you're amazing <laughs> in that moment. And we're also like that for her character because her ca- that's her character's moment to shine. Yeah. She's sort of been downtrodden before that um, by, by Martin Short's, you know, excessively yeah. um, opinionated directorial vision. Um, so she slips her own song in there and she, she takes her moment to shine. And that's also this moment, which I love also that it's couched in this 
um, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream, fairy-esque, you know, she weaves her romantic spell on everyone. Yeah. Um, and that's the moment Burke realises his feelings for her yeah. while she's coming into her own and shining with her own personal goals. And I actually really liked that because that is something that 90s and 2000s films don't often give their male, uh, their main female character is mm. her own ambition, her own storyline that is separate from her love interest. So in this one, um, Burke is falling in love with her while she is pursuing her own dreams. And mm. I really liked that. It, it kind of, you know, normally it's the other way around. Yeah, well, I was just thinking as you were talking about She's the Man. Um, not Was it She's the Man? No, She's All That. Written by the same person. Really? She's All That was written by um, R. Lee Fleming Jr., who also wrote Get Over It. (laughs) Oh, well, see, I actually think that this is better than than She's All That because remember the artwork, the way that the the main character, I've forgotten her name, Lainey? Yes. Um, Lainey Boggs. Yeah, Lainey Boggs, that's (laughs) it. Um, The way that her artwork was conceptualised is it had to be about, like, it came out of her love for the guy, yes, exactly. right, and and yeah. it was considered wrong when it wasn't inspired by this kind of true feeling for, you know, the yeah. male the male love interest. And here, she's just a really talented songwriter, mm. and it has nothing to do with him. And he appreciates it, but it's not inspired by him. It's, I mean, it's about you know unrequited love, but it's not. She's not a good songwriter because of him. Yes, exactly. She just she's happens just using to be it as a handy vehicle to express her real feelings about it yeah again very Dawson's Creek but yeah it's not it's not tied to it's not like she was inhibited before and because of her love for him she could just you know pour forth Mm. um she just happens to be really good at what she does and he appreciates that and she can acknowledge it too I love that she says early on I'm actually really good at this stuff do you want some help yeah (laughs) yes you are yes you are damn good at this stuff yeah exactly (laughs) and I thought that was so much more interesting than she's all that I mean I didn't I think, I, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it was fun watching. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as you. Um, <laughs> I think yeah. that there were, like, I found myself kind of, except for the bits where the um, the musical happened, I was kind of ready to be, for it to be over a little bit, although it's very short, so that's... It is short. Short yeah. and sweet. Short and sweet. <laughs> um, but, With Cisco. Um, yes. I mean, Cisco. Prior to Thong. Just prior Post the release, post, but prior to becoming famous for post the immortal Thong song. <laughs> there are so many famous people in this movie. I know. Even Myla Kunis. Myla Kunis, Zoe Saldana. Yep. So many famous people. And uh, Felix, um, played by Tom Hanks' Yes, son. Colin Hanks. Yes. So, yes, wow. So yeah. How do you miss this movie? Because, like, Preston Dunst was, like, one of my two kind of mil- late millennial icons, like... Um, not late millennial, old millennial icons, like um, we're both, I think, the older side of the millennial age range, you know, we're a similar age. Um, and it was like Kirsten Dunst and Kerry Russell from Felicity were my favorite, like, <laughs> and maybe Katie Holmes as well from, Del- and certainly Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, the Queen. Um, they, were, they were like the actors that I associate with that time. Mm. And um, I don't know how I missed this. Yeah. Uh, did you recognize. Um what's his name, Stryker, of the horrendous accent in this film. Oh, my God, the accent. He He was an extra in a Buffy episode or a side character, you know. Who was he? Um, I'm trying to remember. I'm wondering if he was the – was he the guy that that basically built a Frankenstein's monster of his brother? Possibly. No, 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 wait, that was – no. 
Oh, no, it wasn't him. He was connected to some... I'm trying, he had rage issues or something like that. I just could see his face flashing before me in one episode. I have lost internet. Um, um, but he... That was one thing about the film. Like His, his accent was a constant joke throughout. His pathetic, oh weirdly morphing accent that was sort of British and South African and Australian and not. It was a bit of everything. And I think that was intentional because they kept making a joke of it. But it, it was had never to be. explained. It was terrible. <laughs> it was <laughs> never resolved. It's probably the worst accent. I mean, it was up there with David Boreanaz doing an Irish accent in in um oh in God, Buffy. Yeah. So I'm looking this up. This oh okay, he was Sean in the episode Go Fish. You know the episode oh. where Xander has um like fish steroids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um the swim team episode. Yeah, that was a good episode. <laughs> that was a good episode. Um. Yes, okay, so that yeah. was him. So yes, this is really nineties. This is yeah, this very much. It's so um, much of its time. It is, um, but I'd, yeah, I thought it was just so fun. Like um, even his character was <laughs> the ending that comes to him when he gets exploded off the stage <laughs> into the audience. It's just so you could see it coming, and it was completely ridiculous. <laughs> but it, it just felt so funny when it's yeah. it, you know. <laughs> You're, you're, you're talking me into appreciating the good moments in this film. <laughs> it was just, yeah, it was really silly. I, I do like, um, you know, so we, we were talking about how Burke realises his love for Kelly during her musical production, and this is part of the play. So this is what I like, what the film does. It just makes um, a lot of its resolution happen within the play, within the movie. Yeah, and which I really is like how that. Midsummer Night's Dream exactly. too, the resolution comes about yeah. through that play within a play. Exactly, yeah. which is kind of why I think this leans towards adaptation I do like what it does um but um so Burke's main moment though comes by um altering the storyline mm. and he expresses his love for Kelly um who is playing uh Helena Helena yeah um by basically deviating from the script and Stryker pipes up you can't just change 400 year old literature mm-hmm. it's not even supposed to rhyme <laughs> and I just you know, I love those tongue-in-cheek references yeah. to the to adaptation itself. So I've, I've mentioned that type of a quote in almost every uh, teen adaptation we've looked at yeah. in this series so far. There's always something in there about a resistance to changing literature. You can't mess with Shakespeare or you can't mess with Jane Austen or, you know. Yeah. Which, <laughs> as we, we know, is nonsense. Yeah, because exactly. when you do, it's really fun. Exactly, and I love that. So, and I love that it's someone like Stryker is saying that his objection to um, yeah. changing Shakespeare is automatically written off by us because we're like, yes, you can, and it's a lovely thing to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, it's super fun, and you know, it's, yeah, it's playful. And yeah, exactly, and it's commenting upon itself. And exactly, yeah. yeah. No, I, I do agree. I, I think that um, look, it's better than um, she's all that. Um, yeah, that's because she's all that plays it serious. It's. It doesn't really. It makes one brief reference to adaptation in referencing *Pretty yeah. Woman*, but it, otherwise, it's a. It's meant to be a serious, romantic tale, yeah. um, and in doing so, I don't think it's very romantic. Whereas this one isn't meant to be serious, and yeah. it ends up being actually quite romantic. I was yeah, really yeah. satisfied with the ending, and the fact that um, we, we see another one of Burke's kind of flights of fancy where basically the ending is them strolling off into that midsummer night in moonlight forest yeah. i was like oh my gosh I, I, you know they've already gotten together by that point and i was like okay yeah that's sweet and then they did that yeah and it was just so generic so stereotypical but at the same time so imaginative and beautiful and sweet and innocent that i was completely just and they did love yeah and they didn't <laughs> play it like they played it tongue-in-cheek but also not completely 
over the top ridiculous. Like there wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, if it managed to find a kind of nice midpoint between, you know, the sort of self-referential um, wittiness and yeah. funniness, but also there's a genuineness to it. It doesn't lean too heavily on either side. Exactly. It's it, not, it allows yeah. you to, to laugh, but in a way that isn't uh, meant to be mean-spirited. We're not, we're not, criticizing this no. we're not meant to be you know have this sardonic kind of edge to our laughter mm. it's meant to be laughing in a in a really sweet happy way and i do you know i just felt like this was a good time to watch this film it was such a sweet balm yeah i think I agree. you know yeah. you know given the time that we're in right now yeah. um, with covid going on and everything this was a really nice little flight of fancy in itself and i like yeah. that because you know a lot of people have interpreted uh, Midsummer Night's Dream itself, as you kind of meant, you know, I think uh, Col- Coleridge says this. You meant yeah. to um, interpret the whole play as a dream itself. So it's kind of like uh, I just love that. That's it true. That. Tone, yeah. I mean, the more we talk about all of these adaptations, the more that I'm really firmly convinced that a good ad- adaptation is one that picks up on the tone, absolutely, um, of the original text. And this does pick up on the tone of the original text, which which just goes to show you that changing plot, changing characters, mm-hmm. changing. Um, the kind of central narrative arc, I suppose, um, of of an adaptation, that's all unimportant. And people who go and say, well, you've changed this and you've changed this and changed this are kind of missing the point. Absolutely. The point is tone. The point is sort of spirit. Yeah. And you're right. It is a, it is a sort of um, a sort of light morsel. Yeah. And in the way that the, the play is like a light morsel. I mean, not that there's not serious things going on in the play, but it's got that kind of light frothy um, yeah it's meant to, to be it. it's meant to be a, a celebration it's meant to be entertaining um, yeah you know the whole the whole premise of it is that it's it's set um sort of around a wedding that's yeah. happening and so yeah i i think um yeah it just really taps into that essence i guess if we, if we want to talk in those sort of terms mm. um and even and I think this is borne out by the uh, the time and the energy that's given in this film to um, showing showcasing its uh, different characters, mm. particularly their dance numbers and their singing. I just we have to return to Cisco because his yes. performance of "It's Fun to Be a Fairy," <laughs> and then yeah. also obviously the closing uh, sort of credits number. He sings with vitamin C so, uh, yeah. of Earth, Wind, and Fire's September. Yep, I I watched the whole lot of that. <laughs> I didn't turn it off knowing the film was over, even though I had to get up and go to work. I was, you know. I was like, I'm going to watch this to the end because this is so much fun. I have to say, I kind of it kind of made me respect Cisco, which is I don't realize. Like as that <laughs> sentence is coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, <laughs> I really respect Cisco. Yeah, but like the fact that he kind of can take the piss. Yeah, out of himself. Well, to be fair, the thong song was a joke. Yeah, I but know. Not taken seriously, but like yeah, that yeah. is true. But like he has a, but he has that. Um, he has that kind of, you know, like rapper kind of cool yeah. and image, you know, of the scantily clad women. And this is such a really self-referential joke. Which you're right, the film song also is a joke. <laughs> I think it's a little bit kind of more of an obvious yeah. joke. And this is um yeah, it's just cute and funny and that is a great that's why I said I think the, the best part of this movie was that production. It was so <laughs> good. <laughs> the lines just made me bark out loud. Like, oh, I really want to see this. Like, this is the kind of Shakespeare I'm really into. Like, just to take it, you know, with this sort of deadly profane seriousness, which I think that sometimes we need to get away from treating Shakespeare with this sort of, you know, yeah, oh, this is very serious. Yeah, yeah, this very reverential. This is very serious. We'll clap lightly and, yeah, you know, at the end of the each because that's not how it would have been enjoyed at no, the time. It's no. not how it was written, and it's definitely not how the jokes. Um, we've spoken about this before about. Um, 
uh, a lot of the humour in Shakespeare is really um, Audrey sort yeah. of, Audrey sort of, um, you know, there's a lot of toilet humour, there's yeah. a lot of like rudeness, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, of silly jokes. jokes, there's lots yeah. of, you know, like even fart jokes, you know, like it's <laughs> it's not, I think that we really lose something when we approach Shakespeare as this, you know, cultural lion that we need to you know bow before and we can just have some fun i mean i always say this to my students you know if you're going to an early modern play you'll be (laughs) somebody might be selling you an orange at the time or you know somebody um there might be people yelling and screaming and if they didn't like something they would yell at the stage or whatever (laughs) i'm like this wasn't you know well Shakespeare yeah, and deeply cultured. Absolutely. It was the popular culture of the time. So it, it actually was. makes much more sense to approach this from a popular culture perspective than from a yeah. kind of, you know, Shakespeare is the untouchable genius who we have to venerate. Absolutely. This is why I don't have a problem with that humping dog being in a Shakespeare adaptation. <laughs> I reckon that Shakespeare would have loved a humping dog, loved to be honest. I mean, that was a great dog. Yeah. And the fact that he gets <laughs> his happy ending, it's just lovely. <laughs> Sorry, that's just... <laughs> Double entendre there. I know. Oh, he does. Yes, he does. Over, but yes. in the romantic sense, yeah. Yes. Um, it was it was sweet. Um, and I also like that, again, you know, we're dealing with um, exactly what we've talked about. So this kind of really fun approach to adaptation mm. within a really fun approach to adaptation. adaptation so we've got yeah. that multiple layering going on. And, again, that's just very Shakespeare. Yeah, It's very absolutely. Midsommar's dream. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you have I my, my only kind of reservations about <laughs> Film have been argued out of me, but I did. I did enjoy it. I've converted I, you. I did. I did really enjoy it, and it, yeah. like I watched it for the whole thing. I didn't, you know, scroll through my phone or do any of that, you know, because yeah. it, and it's got a lot like a lovely color palette too. It does, yeah, yeah. Even the, you know, I did um, laugh at like the really super low pants in the first scene. <laughs> the outfit. Yeah. When, um, you know, I thought when Vitamin C comes out and she's doing that opening number you yeah. know, in the first scene, I was like, I, I actually had that outfit. <laughs> yeah. The crop top for the super low, like shiny, yeah. like metallic Weird pants. Weird kind of cargo pants, yeah. yeah. <laughs> metallic cargo pants. Always a hot look. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. So now that we've revisited our question mistakes. <laughs> Of time's passed. I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you for having me. Um, We'll see you again in two weeks, probably for another teen adaptation. (laughs) Um, That's really hard to say. Thank you, Jimmy, for making me say that. (laughs) Um, If you've got any other teen adaptation um, suggestions, please get in touch at fromthelighthouse.org or you can tweet at us at MQ English. We'll see you again in two weeks. Bye.